loss, death, I often say that grief is love obstructed. The love is there. In fact, the grief, the depth of grief is in exact proportion to the depth of the love. Welcome back to an all new season of Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey guys! So everything works better after you unplug it, including this show. And we are thrilled to be together again after a much needed summer break. And we're even more excited to start rolling out some changes to our format. Hi guys, Jamie here. But first we have a very big, huge actually, announcement to make. So Christine, I'm going to let you take it away. Hi guys, it's Christine. (laughs) As you know, being part of Off the Gram has been an incredible and fun experience. And the four of us have built something so special from a spark of an idea we had on a photo shoot. I think it was one day in Central Park. (laughs) Funny enough. I'm so proud of the roster of guest experts. We've had smart wellness advice, and we've been able to share this over, my gosh, what, 83 episodes, and it flew by. We've bonded and created a sisterhood that has given me strength and comfort during one heck of a year, and I know we'll only make that bond stronger. Team OTG are like sisters to me, and I'm forever grateful for their friendship, but Megan said something to me recently that really hit home. She was talking about how fun it is to watch me come alive on my TV segments and morning shows when I'm pairing the perfect shoe with a cheerful rainbow outfit, styling a room in bright, happy colors, or recommending the latest beauty trends to viewers. And she's right. After taking our summer hiatus, it gave me some time to think and think about when when and where I truly shine and I'm at my happiest. And the answer, it really is getting back to my roots as a fashion and beauty editor when I'm giving women advice on how to get gorgeous on Good Morning America, New York Live, and all your favorite morning shows and inspiring them to live their happiest, colorful, and most energized lives. I'm doing much more of that lately, and I really want to focus my energy on what's best for me and my brand and where I can really make a difference. So with happy tears, <laughs> I want to announce that I'm giving up my co-hosting seat on Off the Gram. I promise to pop back on and share what's next with all of you very soon. And in the meantime, look out for lots more segments from me on the big screen, especially if you're watching in the local New York channels and the tri-state area. I'll be doing much more of that this year. And I really want to focus my energy and do it right. I mean, after all, that's what we preach here on Off the Gram, right? Live your best life. Do you. Do what feels right. And enjoy the ride. I can also hint that fashion designer Amanda Perna and I are cooking up some fun, fabulous surprises too. So stay tuned on all that. You guys know where to find me at NYC Pretty. I love you, ladies. I love this audience and this community and big hugs and kisses and goodbye for now. I'm crying. Obviously, I'm crying. Megan likes to cry. Christine, I just want, I mean, I know I speak for all of us. We love you so much and we are so excited for you. And I think we've all had moments in our lives where we have pivoted and followed our heart. And there is nothing that takes more courage than doing that. I've walked away from one job that I actually loved to do another that I knew I was better, that it would be better served for me and for others. And it takes it takes chutzpah, as we say in my religion. And I just want to say, I just want to honor yeah. that and, and just reiterate how much we love you. We love you. Thank we love you. you. I just, I felt like it, 
Thank you. Thank you. I just feel like, I mean, I know I mean, I'm a multitasker and Jamie, you do it best, but I don't, there's a point where you just feel like you're putting your energy into something that it should be put somewhere else. And as much as I love doing this, I think, you know, like I said, back to my roots, I, I was a fashion beauty editor for my entire career. And I put that on my platform. And that's how I built NYC pretty. And it takes a lot, you know, that's been expanding and growing. And that takes a lot of effort and work and the stuff that John and I are doing on the side now, um, content creation, a lot more brand work. So it's, it's great. It's all, it's busy. We're having fun. And um, I just, I don't want to not do the things I love doing as well as I can do. Well, and obviously this isn't goodbye for any of us. No. Just for our listeners, we're actually friends in real life. So, you know, when when the COVID, you know, restrictions ease up, when all the different variants are gone, we expect to see each other a lot in real life. Yes. Yeah. Off the ground. And events. I'm sure you guys will see. I know, you know, we might be doing some fun projects together going forward. So you guys won't. It's not the end of me. Obviously. <laughs> obviously. But I mean, I think this also harkens back to our interview with Paula Ferris back like several mm-hmm. months ago when she had left one thing to just pursue another thing. And I just want to say, I just think it's it's wonderful and amazing. And I am so excited that our listeners can continue mm-hmm. to follow along at NYC Pretty and see what you're doing and support you and be a part of your journey as we all get to be every day mm-hmm. IRL. Thank and you. I will say the whole conversation that Christine and I had will be a part of my next book because <laughs> this is all about what I'm about now is uncovering your truth and, and really living your best life. Yeah. What makes you shine in the eyes? And this is what makes you shine in the eyes. And I have to say, you know, it took this team here, you know, talking to you guys over the summer and, and bouncing ideas off of you. It did take a team to actually, you know, give me the courage to say that I wanted to do that. Cause I, you know, you think of it and you're like, Oh, I don't want to be a quitter. I don't want to just walk away from something. That's a great opportunity, but I'm, I'm also putting my energy towards other opportunities that I want to work on. So it, it did. I mean, I'm so thankful for you guys. You guys really helped walk me through it and hold my hand. And um, you made me realize that it was the best decision for me. So thank you. And I know you have a guest to get back to, so I don't want to hold Love you, you so much, Christine. Thank you for everything. Thank Love you for you. creating this magic that is off the ground with all of yeah. us. And obviously mm. all of us and all of our listeners <laughs> with you, nothing but the best with all of your future. Endeavors. Thank you. And if you guys ever need, if you're short on guests and you ever need a filler and you just want to chit chat, you're (laughs) coffee talk. Don't think I won't be FaceTiming you for my shoe advice. Come on. What shoe do I wear? (laughs) All right. Well, go get back to your show. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Raul. He's our, he's our guy behind the scenes. (laughs) And um, I'll big kisses and I can't wait to hear what episode you guys are about to do. Bye. Love you. Okay, guys, I'm not crying. You're crying. (laughs) Oh, okay. We're good. We're good here. All right. We're back. It's Jamie. It is oddly appropriate, in fact, that today's guest is one of the most profound voices on change and loss. Coming up, you'll meet Rabbi Steve Leader, the author of The Beauty of What Remains. As the head of one of the world's largest synagogues and a rabbi who has presided at more than a thousand funerals, Steve Leader thought he knew how to cope with death until his own father died. It was then that Steve Leader, the rabbi, became Steve Leader, the son, facing his own experience of love, regret, and pain in a more personal and intimate way than ever before. What he discovered was life-changing. In death, we do not lose. We actually gain more than we ever imagined. 
Okay, so I'll be crying this entire episode, but Steve and I are both Penguin Random House authors, and our book team united us on a powerful IG Live. I cried my eyes out um, talking to him about my father's death and my own grief journey, and I learned so much for him from him, and I am just so thrilled to bring him to the show. We're going to focus on his new book, which is The Beauty of What Remains Today, but let me also shout out his bio because he's a big deal. He's a senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles and the author of The Extraordinary Nature of Ordinary Things, More Money Than God, and the bestseller, More Beautiful Than Before. He received his degree in writing from Northwestern University and spent time studying at Trinity College, Oxford University, before receiving a master's degree in Hebrew letters and rabbinical ordination from Hebrew Union College. He's originally from Minneapolis and now he lives in Los Angeles with his family. Not impressive at all. Heidi here. Just kidding. I'm so blown away by this man. Um, Listen, everyone listening, this is your show. Listen to the show if you've lost someone you love and are grieving or if you want to help a friend who's hurting. There are so many reasons to tune in, and they are every grief-related thing. This is your show. Welcome, Steve. We are beyond thrilled to have you on today as our very first guest of the new season of Off the Gram. It is particularly apropos because we just made a very big announcement that our beloved co-host, Christine, is leaving us for an exciting new venture. And I believe that all big change is is a moment of loss, and your work on processing loss has been called a bomb to the soul. So we are really, really excited to talk to you about your new book, The Beauty of What Remains. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here with with all of you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, So Rabbi Steve, uh, you know, I, I love your book, and it's right behind me. One of the things I found so hilarious, actually, is that you were a pot-smoking, kind of ruffian, one of five, who got arrested at Target for stealing a Bob Dylan album. And that's, ironically, how you found the synagogue. Can you take us, can, can you tell us this rabbi journey? Because I was like, wait, what? That is my kind of guy, by the way. I'm all about that life. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, at least it was a Dylan album. Right, exactly. Not like Britney (laughs) Spears. Yeah, you can't accuse me of bad taste. Uh, (laughs) So I I grew up in a a suburb of Minneapolis called St. Louis Park. If any of you or any of your listeners ever saw the Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man, that that movie is a hallucination of my childhood. They (laughs) they grew up about five blocks away from me. Um, We all went to the same high school. Uh, it was this little um, Jewish ghetto in the middle of Minnesota. Uh, it was, you know, very small. I didn't at the time realize that the reason all the Jews were there is because we weren't really welcome elsewhere at that time in the 60s and 50s and 40s. But in any case, it was a very insular place. And I was one of five kids. I grew up in a working class blue collar family. My dad and my uncle owned a junkyard. Um, and there were seven of us in a three bedroom, one bathroom house and nobody went hungry. And, but you know, nobody, none of my parents, aunts or uncles went to college. And that's how I grew up. I was the fourth of five. My parents were 17 and 18 when they got married and they had five kids before they were 30. So by the time they got to me and my little brother, Greg, 
when I was, you know, a teenager, my dad had finally made some money. They were gone every other month. They had, I think I was raised by wolves, really. I mean, they, they were just so done parenting. And so I got into a little bit of trouble. Um, I played drums in a rock and roll band. And, you know, we, we smoked weed in school pretty much every day. And, uh, you know, I kind of lost my way because nobody was paying attention to me. And I was pretty bored in school. And then when my parents were on vacation in Florida, I went with the guys in my band and we stole a bunch of albums from Target. And all I did was talk to the cashier while the other guys did the dirty deed, right? So I thought even if they get busted, there's nothing illegal about talking to a cashier. I had not yet been introduced <laughs> to the concept of accessory to the crime. That was, that was, that was not anything I was, I was aware of at the time. So we get arrested. We go to the police station. My, my big sister, Marilyn, has to bail me out. And I have to call my parents and tell them I got arrested for shoplifting. They come home from their vacation. And to make a long story short, they went to the rabbi of our synagogue, Rabbi Max Shapiro, Temple Israel. And Rabbi Shapiro said, Steve's a really good kid. He's just bored. You got to change his peer group. You should send him to this Jewish summer camp in Wisconsin, in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. And I had uh, just turned 15. And the place changed my life. I loved everything about it. I, I loved uh, the hippie counselors and the music they were into. I loved that we could write our own, you know, creative services. We'd grow our own food in the garden. Uh, I loved, uh, you know, the pretty girls from Chicago with flowers in their hair. And it was the 70s. And, uh, you know, just everything about it. And there were these rabbis there. It was the first time in my life I had ever seen a rabbi in shorts and a T-shirt who could throw a baseball. And it, I said to myself, wait a minute, rabbis can be normal human beings? Because my rabbis at home were these old, scary German guys in robes. And, you know, they, were, they just weren't people to me. Here were these young guys who went to rabbinical school, and there were women there too. Um, but particularly the guys went to rabbinical school to avoid the draft and the Vietnam War. And I, I, I thought, these are normal people, but they know a secret I don't know. There's something special about them. And they're connected to something special. And I, got, I really never looked back from that point on. I was so lucky that at 15, I, I met a group of adults about whom I could say to myself, when I grow up, I want to be like that. And that set me on a path. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in writing. I spent some time working on, in politics. You know, I flirted with other things, but I always kept coming back to the, this, this calling, really, to be a rabbi. That's incredible. So, Rabbi Steve, this is Jamie, and I am Jewish, but uh, I think, you know, for me, it really, I'm culturally Jewish. I love having been brought up Jewish, but I consider myself more spiritual than religious because I'm a seeker and I love, I love just exploring all different facets of spirituality. So I really found it wonderfully interesting and compelling to hear that even though you're a rabbi of the Jewish faith, your teachings, you kind of feel like your teachings are universal. And it sounds like it was a, a truth or a secret that you found in those rabbis that drew you to the faith. So can you share what, what is that secret? Well, tell us. 
Yeah. I, I, you know, it's sort of what, what Potter Stewart, Justice Potter Stewart, when he was asked to define obscenity by the Supreme Court, he said, I can't define it, but I know when I see it. So, look, all I can tell you is that there is no aspect of the human condition that the ancient sages did not think through very deeply. And human, the human condition has not changed. It has not changed. We still suffer from all of the things that people suffered from 5,000 years ago. Anxiety, loss, grief, loneliness, depression, fear. Not, the human condition has not changed. And the rabbis of old spent their entire lives thinking through the human condition and how best to soothe and comfort and ennoble that experience of being human, how to be a humane human being. And yes, the Bible was written in Hebrew and the Talmud in Aramaic, but what they were talking about was fundamentally common to all human beings. And what I have tried to do in my writing is to universalize these very particularistic sources and to open them up for everyone uh, to be a part of and to, and to feel and to know. Um, and, and by the way, that's why, for example, to be completely transparent about this, when you read in one of my books, you know, this, uh, a sage once said, that sage was a rabbi 2,000 years ago, but I'm trying to remove the language that creates barriers to accessing this wisdom. I don't put Rabbi Steve Leader on the cover of the book, you know, because it's a barrier. So oh, that's not for me. No, it actually is for you. And so I'll say a sage, I'll say there's an ancient folktale. I'll say there's a myth about this or about that. I'm, I'm sensitive to removing psycholinguistic objections to ancient wisdom. And that's really what this is mostly about. And one of the beautiful things for me as a rabbi, particularly during the pandemic and the death of my father, I fall in love again and again and again with this wisdom and these sages and these sources. I'm as in love. I've been married 36 years to my wife, Betsy. We got engaged on our second date. That's the truth. Okay, we were 24 years old. We were sitting on the couch in my apartment in Cincinnati. I was in rabbinical school. We had met the weekend before. I looked at her and I said, I don't know if I should say this or not, but I think you're it. And she looked at me and she said, I feel the same way. And then as only a naive 24-year-old could, I looked at her and I said, so <laughs> are we engaged? And, and she said, and the I rest guess is so. history. <laughs> and yeah, 36 years. So I tell you that story only to say that I fought when I know when I'm in love. I knew at 15 I was in love. I knew at 24 I was in love. But what's beautiful about it is that love, I've been able to renew that love, both of those types of love, over and over again in response to what? The human condition. That's so beautiful. I think you've rendered us all speechless, which is not an easy feat. <laughs> this is Heidi. And I'm not crying yet, Steve. I can't believe it. You're I'm a little ready. red, Meg. 
bags. <laughs> but I want to touch on something that you said and sort of tie it into something from your book, which is you did touch on your father's death. And of course, we're all so sorry for your loss. Um, I lost the man who raised me. My stepfather raised me. And I remember some of the advice I got that was helpful was people telling me that grief wasn't linear. Um, so I wanted to ask you in your infinite wisdom, how would you characterize grief? Are there seven stages? Does grief look the same on everyone? What are your thoughts, please? I'm really glad you asked because there were two or three profound insights that I wanted to write about in this book that I achieved by, by moving from Steve leader, the rabbi to Steve leader, the son, right? And one of the things I learned moving from Steve Leader, the rabbi, who had 30 years of experience with a, literally a thousand deaths, but none, the death of someone I deeply loved, who brought me into the world. And so the, the book is, is part narrative about that transition and part field guide, Right. So what did I learn about grief that I didn't know before? So I'm 61 years old. My generation and yours, we were all raised under, when it comes to grief and death and dying, we were all raised primarily in this rubric created by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who talked about five stages of dying and death and five stages of grief. And the problem with that, even though the book themselves are more nuanced. The titles alone imply that grief is a linear process. First, you feel A, then B, then C, then D, then E, and then you're done. And my experience as a mourner made it so clear to me that grief is a non-linear experience. The way I put it in the book is anyone who thinks the shortest distance between two points is a straight line knows nothing about grief, nothing about loss. There are many types of loss, right? So I prefer to talk about grief. I I prefer a metaphor uh, of waves. Grief is like waves, for me, at least. We're all only experts in our own grief. What I learned about my grief was that it was wave-like. The waves come very close together and very aggressively at first. And they do spread out. They do come further apart. And sometimes you can have a month a year, a decade even, of beautiful calm seas. And then all of a sudden, when your back is turned, this rogue wave of grief rises up and just crashes down on you. I I see this in grandparents at a wedding. When the woman he was married to for 60 years isn't there to see their grandchild be married. And by the way, he's remarried and happy. But all of a sudden, there's this rogue wave of grief. Now, to extend that metaphor further, there are two ways to face a wave. And this changed me. So the old, you know, the Rabbi Steve leader, whenever I had a wave coming at me, my default setting was I'm planting my feet in the sand, I'm sticking my chest forward and I'm going to hold my ground because I am more powerful than any wave. I don't care if it's a wave of work, anxiety, my kid in trouble, whatever. I I am holding my ground because I am bigger than any wave. And what happens with 
profound loss if you have that position is we all know what happens when you try to do that and it's a really big wave. You end up upside down, thrashing, slammed against the rocks, scared, pulled in, pulled under. There's a second way to, to deal with a wave, which is when it's coming at you to just lie down and let it wash over you and float with it. Just float with it until you can stand up again. That might be a minute. It might be an hour. It might be a day. It might be a week. doesn't matter. And while you're floating, I also learned, and this is pretty hard for someone who is always taking care of other people, I learned that it's really helpful if you reach your hand out while you're floating in this grief. And very often there's someone standing there who will take your hand and help lift you from that suffering. You know, the, uh, the Talmud says, the prisoner cannot free himself. That's such a powerful uh, and profound idea. The prisoner cannot free himself. You've got to reach out. And I'll give you a concrete example of how this changed me, not just as a person, as a man, father, husband, son, but also as a rabbi. The, the most difficult thing I ever, ever have to do is to help parents bury a child. There is nothing that sucks the marrow out of my bones like that does, and that is, is minuscule compared to what these parents are dealing with. What I used to say to parents, I would walk them into the chapel before the service was starting. There's always this little office for the minister or the rabbi, and we would sit in there, and I would, I would have looked at you, and I would have said, Heidi, the most honest and helpful thing I can say to you right now is it won't always hurt so much. That's what I used to say. I don't say that anymore. Now what I say is, Heidi, the most honest and helpful thing I can say to you right now is it won't always hurt so often. The waves grow further apart. But the truth is when it hurts, it hurts every bit as much as it ever hurt. When I hear you are my sunshine or I hear Hank Williams or I'm wiping the spaghetti sauce off my plate with a crust of bread, I miss my dad so much. When Megan finds some beach glass, I mean, you know, Right? So this is the truth of grief. It's waves. It's nonlinear. And knowing that really helps us all, I think, float with it, give ourselves permission to be wounded again and again and again, to make peace with what we cannot control. And I'll say one more thing about this that's related to grief that has to do with memory. The other truth I think that we have to embrace that is, is in tension with what most people say, the platitudes about this truth has to do with memory, right? So there's, myth, there's this myth about the linear nature of grief, which isn't true. And there's a myth about memory, which isn't true. 
So we have all these platitudes about memory. You know, um, may her memory be a blessing. He'll live on in your memories. You'll always have your memories, right? And that's all true. Memory is beautiful, but there's a duality to memory. Memory is beautiful, and it really, really hurts sometimes. It's both. In, in the book, I say it's like being caressed and spat on at the same time. That's memory. And knowing that and making peace with that makes grief and moving forward more, not less possible. I really tried to tell the truth in this book. Whether that makes people feel better or not, I don't know. But I do know that for me, when I'm suffering, knowing that someone really gets that, really understands that, helps, helps me an, an awful lot. And, that's, and, and then you can move forward into the beauty. That's why I call the book The Beauty of What Remains. Because once you can make peace with these dualities, with this dichotomous tension of loss and grief, then these beautiful things are revealed. Um, I, I talk about it like a, uh, like a statue. Um, if you think about the most beautiful marble statue you've ever seen, think about how that statue began, right? It began as a single chunk of marble and the beauty that was always there was always within that chunk of marble. But the beauty wasn't revealed until a sculptor artfully took away everything that wasn't beautiful, chip by chip by chip. Um, this is in Latin called via negationis, by way of the negative, that you create by removing, not by adding. So death removes so much. It strips away so much. It hurts so much. But it also, in that stripping away, helps clarify what the essence and meaning and beauty and purpose of our lives really, really is. I mean, what would a deathless life be? Think about that for a minute. What would we be if we led deathless lives? It, it would, no one would get married. No one would have children. Nobody would create. Nobody would have ambition. Life wouldn't matter. Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. And it's really, it's really that simple. I mean, death does add this incredible beauty to life. It's why. I'm paraphrasing Wallace Stevens, the poet here. Uh, he said, the beauty of a flower is that it fades. That's why, that's why we're not moved by plastic flowers, because they have no death. They have no life. Nobody likes plastic flowers, right? <laughs> I mean, they're the cheesiest thing ever. I don't care how good, beautiful silk flowers. No, they're not. They're not flowers. Yeah. Those are real behind you. I know. Those are real. I know. I wouldn't have said it otherwise, but... <laughs> uh, I, but you know that's that's the truth of death it's the thing it is the great teacher of life it is the great revealer of life and I, I, I know I'm rambling but 
The other creed. So you, you don't know this about me, but my father and I, this is still hard for me. So my father and I have, we looked almost identical at each stage of our life. If you saw a picture of him at 10 and a picture of me at 10, you, you really wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And like these, these bags here, these are my dad right here. I look in the mirror now, I see my dad. When my dad died and I flew back to Minneapolis for the funeral, my four siblings and my mom and the spouses, everybody was there, the grandchildren. And the rabbi came in the room to walk us into the chapel where the funeral would be to view my father's body before the casket was closed and the service would begin. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, I know exactly how this rabbi feels. I have no idea how I feel. It's so surreal. Now, keep in mind, I had stood shoulder to shoulder, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, with a thousand or more families in front of an open casket, supporting them while they looked at their loved one in the casket. And honestly, I wasn't moved by it. It didn't, to be honest, I I could have eaten a sandwich. I mean, I, I was fine. When I walked in and I looked into my, at my father in that casket, it was, it was this realization where I said to myself, hmm, that's exactly how I'm going to look when I'm dead. And my son is bending over my casket. And it was at that moment at 58 years old, having officiated at more than a thousand funerals. It wasn't until that moment that I realized I was going to die. And that realization has profoundly changed my life for the better. And that's what I mean by the beauty of what remains. It is, death is the only teacher well first of all we're all sobbing but uh (laughs) this is jamie um i think it's so you know it's a beautiful notion to ride the wave but it's hard because a lot of us you know like we still have to function you can't always just lie down and as much as we all preach self-care it'd be nice to be able to retire to the boudoir and just just ride it out and hug your pillow but the reality is you also need to find resilience, right? So there's got to be some happy medium of being able to function. So you share a resilience trick in the book to help people move through their suffering. You know, would you be able to kind of share a little bit about that with us? Tell me which one you're referring to. Flashing back to, and, and sort of knowing that you do hard the mental things. Vacation. Yes, exactly. Oh, oh. The, the, well, there are two things. I understand what you're saying now. Most people benefit from being reminded or reminding themselves that while this may be the most profound and difficult loss of their lives, it's not the first. It's not the only. We have all experienced very difficult losses prior to the death of a loved one. 
a, a, a mastectomy, a, a divorce, uh, an, a, a kid with an addiction, our own addiction, um, you know, a, a narcissistic mother, an unfeeling, uncaring mother, you know, an abusive. We've all suffered painful losses. It, in COVID, we've all, we've all lost, a ter- we've, we've suffered a terrible loss in COVID, which is the loss of our sense of invulnerability. We're all now realize we're so freaking vulnerable. And it really helps to remember, A, that you did survive those losses and have gone on to enjoy your life. You eat chocolate, you dance, you laugh, you know, you watch Shit's Creek, whatever you do. You eat ice cream by the pine, apparently. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> and it's also helpful to remember how you survive those things. I very often will say, if you were to, were to come to me, Jamie, and say, you know, Rabbi, uh, I have to talk to you. Uh, my, uh, I'm suffering through a terrible experience now. I don't know if you're married or not, Jamie. Um, let's, are you? Yes. Okay. So Rabbi, uh, uh, we're, we're getting divorced and it's, it's the most horrible thing. I don't know what to say to the kids. And I never thought this would happen to me. I would ask you, what is the most difficult thing you ever faced before this? So let's play it out. Jamie, what's the most difficult thing you ever faced before this? my own addiction and coming through that. And how did you get through that? Support community and leaning on the wisdom of people who have been through it before. That's what you're going to do now. Mm. Although she will probably never <laughs> divorce. <laughs> True story. No, True story. It's, it's, an, it's an example, but I would say to you, That's exactly what you're going to do now. All of that ability and wisdom, it hasn't abandoned you. It's still there. And you are going to walk through this dark valley of shadows. You are. And I've I've said to parents, but by the way, every parent who's ever had to bury a child that I have dealt with has said to me, I would rather it was me. They want to die. They really want to die. And I look them right in the eye and say, Jamie, we cannot die because children die. We have to live. And, and, and we have to find a way to live. And you will. And so that's sort of doing, I guess, the way to put it sort of in a business sense is you've got you've to gotta, uh, do an inventory of your resources. What do I have? Who do I have? I have been here before, even though I don't realize I've been here before. Not as severe, not as long, not as tragic. But I've been through some hard things. You don't get to be our age without going through a few things. We've all got some scars. And that is what you rely on. And that's resilience. And that's faith, by the way. That's also faith. You know, I'll say something about since, since, you know, I'm a rabbi, I won't Jew it up too much for you, Jamie, because I know you're a secular Jew. But, but 
I think, you know, Christians and Jews alike all most know that the 23rd Psalm, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Okay. You had yeah. me at yay, okay. Steve, okay? <laughs> we all know that that is almost universally read at funerals. Now, part of the reason that Psalm is read is pretty obvious because it, you know, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures beside still waters. It, it imagines death as this, as this beautiful, peaceful, kind of everlasting afterlife existence. That's obvious. What's less obvious, more nuanced, far more profound, is that verse that says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Right? Now, two things about that. First of all, the poet is telling us we walk through the valley. We don't stay there forever. You're right that you can't always give over to your grief, but you can always put one foot in front of the other. One step forward is an act of profound faith. So that's the first thing. We walk through the valley, but there's something even deeper there. <clears throat> shadow, shadow, yes. shadow metaphor. Exactly. I love this. If game. you think deeply about a shadow, no matter how long or dark it is, it's proof of light. You cannot have a shadow unless the light is still shining. It's obstructed. In the metaphor, it's obstructed by the mountains on each side of the valley. But that's a metaphor for death. Loss, death, I often say <clears throat> that grief is love obstructed. The love is there. In fact, the grief, the depth of grief is in exact proportion to the depth of the love. The love is there. That's beauty that remains. It's, the sun is shining. It's obstructed by this grief. And I'll just say one more cool thing from the Hebrew-Jewish side of this. The Hebrew word for night is Erev. It comes from from its root meaning is to be commingled, mixed up, mixed, mipurav, mixed. So the Jewish concept psycholinguistically of darkness is that it's, ne it's not entirely dark. There's always light mixed in within it. There is no such thing as complete darkness. And, and that's having faith in that, you know, is is a very powerful way to live and, and hope. And so those are, you know, some of the things that I, I help people find, certainly in the book, to use the word resilience, and I think that's a good word. I, I could also use the word to have faith, not necessarily faith in God, whatever that means, because God means so many different mm -hmm. things to so many different people but faith in the goodness of life itself and, and, and in the, and, and faith that, that the sun really does rise no matter how dark it really does. And, and that makes grief bearable. Steve, we're long, we're, we're, we're running out of time. I want to get to um, a message from a listener, but I also really love your quick tips on how yes. to show up for people right. who are hurting, which I think are just so, okay. so really, right. really First important. First thing, uh, very quickly, 
I'm often asked, hey, I'm going to see my friend who just lost her father. What do I say? Or I'm going to see my friend who's just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. What do I say? My answer is always three words followed by two words. Okay. The first three words, just show up. Just show up. The second two words, and be authentic. The rest will unfold. Walk in that door and be who you are. That means don't put on a show. When, when I'm going to see Megan and, and to, to be with her and her suffering, I'm not going to walk in the door with this long, drawn face and say, like this bad acting job of, oh, Megan, I'm so sorry. It's terrible. Oh, my God. I'm going to walk in and say, Megan, I'm here. I got you. I'm going to be Steve. I'm going to be Steve. If, so when you walk in the door, if you're a joker, joke, if you're a feeder, feed, if you're a hugger, hug, you know, if you're an errand runner, run errands, if you're a carpooler, carpool, just be who you are. Because by the way, that is the only thing that assures the person who's suffering that the entire bottom hasn't fallen out of the world, that they're still them because you are still you. Okay. So like I tell jokes a lot. I joke at these things. I, I'm myself. Even after 34 years as a rabbi, when I'm standing on someone's front step or I'm standing in the hospital hallway before I walk in the room, I don't know what I'm going to say. I, all I know is I need to walk in the door and be myself. So that's the most important. And let me do the negative. Never say these seven words. Let me know if you need anything. That is the worst thing you can say to someone who's suffering. First of all, most people who say it don't mean it. It's like kabuki empathy. But even if you do mean it, you're giving this overburdened person homework. Like, hey, think about what you might need and give me a call. They're not going to do it. Just show up, anticipate the need, and just do it. Don't wait to be asked. Don't wait to be told. Just do it. Even if you're wrong, you're right. <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, oh, I don't eat red meat. You're still right dropping off the brisket. It doesn't matter, right? So just never say, let me know if you need anything. That, that is just really painful for people to hear. Um, and there are a bunch of other do's and don'ts in the book, but those are the main ones. It is such an incredible book. Obviously, I'm obsessed with it. Um, and it was interesting because I, I had a picture in my stories of me reading it and I got a million DMs. And one of them was from a young widow named Lindsay who has two small children in New Jersey. Hi, Megan. It's Lindsay. I'm a widow from New Jersey with two small children. And I just got finished reading this amazing book about what remains. And I've been thinking about the job of us as parents in supporting our grieving children. How do we grieve as our children are grieving? And as time moves on, how do we continue to hold the beauty of a future while also greeting our children in their own grief every single day? So it would really be helpful to hear a little bit about what we should show our children, what we shouldn't show our children, and any advice as single parents trying to navigate this really difficult world. So thanks so much for the beautiful book. Thank you for your podcast. Sending you guys so much love. Thanks again. Well, there, there are a few things I would say about that. Let not that loss be their first experience with loss. Like when the goldfish dies, don't flush it and run and get a new one and put it in the bowl and pretend it didn't happen. Uh, when a friend's grandparent dies, 
don't keep your kids from going over to the house with you. Don't have them email or write a letter or card. Don't shelter your kids from death. They learn to fear death from us. They're not born afraid of dying. They learn that from us. So let's hope that their first experience with death isn't the death of a parent. But if it is, and even if they have other experience, look, it depends on the age of the children. The younger they are, the finer they are. All you got to do is love them. Kids just need, the, I, right? This was a, I think the, the baby was two months old yeah. and then a toddler. Okay. I mean, they just need enough. to be loved. You can't screw it up if you love your kids. Okay. And it's not the worst thing in the world for the toddler to, to hear mommy is sad right now and she's missing daddy and it's okay to be sad. You know, now the more important thing is what about when these kids get a little older and ask her very directly, mommy, are you going to die? Now, what do we say? Right? So my advice there is that you tell the truth, but in a reassuring way. Don't say no. Because you are going to die. The thing to say is, all living things die. And I, and I will die someday, but I'm not going to die until I'm very, very, very old. By the way, do you remember how old you thought your parents were when they were our age? Right? You thought they were <laughs> so old. Right? So I'm not, I'm not going to die until I'm very, very, very old. And let's talk about all the things that are going to happen to you, Megan before I'm very, very old. First of all, you're going to turn five and go to kindergarten. And then you're going to go all the way through sixth grade and go to another school. And then you're going to turn 15 and you're going to get something called a driver's permit. And at 16, you're going to get your driver's license. You're going to be able to drive a car like mom. You know how old that seems, how far away that is? And then after that, you might go to college. You might go away to college and study and learn something really amazing. And then, then you, you're going to have a job and, and do something fun that you love. And then maybe someday you're going to fall in love with someone the way mommy and daddy fell in love. And, and you're going to be with that person. And, and then maybe you'll be a mommy someday and you'll have a baby and I'll be the grandma. And it won't be until all those things happen that I'm going to die. Now, we all know that you can get hit by a bus tomorrow, okay? So this is a little bit like telling your kid the plane's not going to crash. It's the right thing to say to a kid, okay? You know the plane could crash, but the odds are it's not going to crash. So no, the plane's not going to crash, right? You don't have to say, probably I'm going to be really old when this happens, but I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. You don't need to say that, okay? You want to ladder it out. You want to tell them the truth, but in a way that comforts them. And, and you ladder it out and, and you will see those children calm down. Now, in, in extreme cases, you want to find a grief center for children. You want to go to the Child Mind Institute in Manhattan. You want to go to our house in Los Angeles. You want to go to wherever. Imagine in New Jersey. Imagine in New Jersey, right? There are these places that are for children to help them with their grief and to help parents parent grieving children. Um, and, and those are sort of the basics without much nuance uh, in, in, in terms of how to handle that. But this woman who has a two-month-old and a toddler, I would say, just love them up. They're going to be fine. They, ju they just need to know they're loved. 
they'll be fine. You know, so often I find that parents, uh, you know, where, where a spouse dies and they're parenting alone, they're really hard on themselves. And, and they're so worried they're not getting an A+. Plus. And, and I'll just tell you quickly a funny story, and maybe you'll make the, it'll make the editor or it won't, but I'll share it with the three of you. Every year, we have two elementary schools as part of our whole constellation of things within the synagogue. And every year I give the graduation speech to the sixth graders when they graduate from our elementary schools. And every year I tell them this. I tell them, you're all moving on to really good schools. And those schools are different than this school. And you're going to encounter something at some point in your years as a student that's really, really hard for you really hard because of the way your brain is wired. It's going to be a real struggle. Now I'm going to introduce all of you to a concept. Your parents do not want me to share with you, but it's a very important concept for life. The concept is called just pass, just pass. There are certain things in life where the goal is not to master or get an A plus because you're not built for an A-plus in that department. Just pass. And I would say to this woman in this initial period of terrible loss and exhaustion and loneliness, pain, when it comes to her girls, it sounds like they're both girls. She has a girl and a boy. Uh, Okay, when it comes to her children, love them. That's just pass. Just love them. And if they spend too much time on their phone or they eat too much ice cream, who cares? Just pass. You got a lot to carry. Just love them all. They'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's really the truth of it. Sage advice. Sage advice. I can't think of a better place for us to wrap this up because I really can't think of any better advice to give in the world than just just love, right? So we always end the show with uh, a fun little segment that we do that we like Heidi and Megan to kind of kick off. So I'm going to throw it to you gals. We call it our karma call. <laughs> Megs, are you going to say it? <laughs> so, so I forced Megan to say this because I just think she's so awesome at it, but I am the yogi. So I like to explain to any guests that might not know the Sanskrit word karma means action. So we ask all of our super wise, amazing guests, you, (laughs) what is one actionable item that our listeners could do for like a week? You know, one small thing they could incorporate into their life change that would change their life for the better. Perhaps it's about grieving. (laughs) Choose something in your life where you are ready to make peace with the concept just pass. That good is good enough. In fact, good is great. That just about sums it up. That just gave us all a pass and to take breath and then just be. If that's not self-love and self-care, I don't know what is. Thank you so much much and i just want to give one final shout out to all of our listeners author to author the beauty of what remains is the ultimate guidebook for healing through loss i gave my i had my chiropractor buy it on amazon while i was on the table today um 
<laughs> so that's how good it is. <laughs> Thank you, Megan. I, I, it means a lot to me. I, I respect what you do very much. And I, I appreciate that, that the book moved you and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep doing each of us in our own way, what we can to make people's lives better. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. you, Okay. Bye-bye. Rabbi Steve. Right. He, so that the advice of the waves was game changing for me. I talked to him on father's day and it was my fifth father's day without my father. And I was like, I don't get to be sad anymore. Why am I so sad? And he's like, no, 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 Megan, your grief isn't over. This is a wave and you need to let this wave wash over you. And you, and I was like, wait a second, I'm allowed to still be upset. I'm allowed to still hurt. What I'm feeling now is okay. And I let that day be sad and teary. And I let that wave of grief wash over me. And it was like, it's just, that was game changing advice for me because I had... I was working so hard to be strong and to be done. You don't get to be sad after five years. But no, there's waves and they're unexpected. And and, and they can one, be tsunamis, Megan. Yeah, and it can be a tsunami. I just thought that was such an incredible reframe of grief that had a, a massive impact on me. It gives you permission. Because, and this is what I talk about all the time with people is like, you know, there's so many things in life that we just think we've thought for our whole life that we should just be able to do it by ourselves and white knuckle it and do it alone. And we beat ourselves up if well, we can't do it. I loved it or... how he was talking about the handout while you yeah, were getting, letting the like, wave pass over you. Exactly. I was like, <gasps> and it's like, girl, how's that working for you? It's been 20, 30, 40 years. Like I talk to women all the time who are struggling with the same thing. And it's like, maybe you just need to ride the wave and ask for a little help. Seems, seems, seems like a simple advice. I, it's funny that we try to all be so tough that we, 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 it doesn't come intuitively. Yeah, we got to muscle, muscle through things. Well, that's, I mean, and that's, that's where the whole yogi thing comes in. It's yeah. like you have to bend so you don't break. And if you're so taut and strong and like dead set on getting through the thing, you will break instead of bending with the wave. You can't surf it. Amen to that. And uh, I want to thank all of our listeners for coming back uh, with us here on season two. And I hope you enjoyed our new moment of having a guest submitted. I mean, sorry, a, a listener submitted question. We found it really special and poignant. And if you do follow us on the gram at off the gram podcast, we will be taking submissions for questions for our upcoming guests. So do follow along, follow our Instagram stories. I'm sure we'll be sharing it on our own channels too, at Megan B. Murphy, at Heidi Christopher, at NYC Fit Fam. And feel free to let us know what it is that you want to share. If you want to send a voice note, we're happy to play your question live and get your questions answered by our amazing guests. Because as evidenced by today, these people change our lives with words. And that's why we're all here. That's our reason for being. So thank you all for joining us to kick off season two. We are excited to bring you all things wellness, social media, and beyond. Don't forget to follow us and subscribe to our podcast anywhere podcasts can be consumed. And again, don't forget to follow us on the gram at off the gram podcast. We'll see you next time.